working in you, which was, again, a great lead-in into the book of Acts uh, because, you know, there's something we have to do and there's something that only God can do, right? So we work together as partners. And that concept of partnership uh, with God is found throughout Scripture. So you'll recall in Cosmic Collision, uh, we discovered that when God created humanity in his image, a part of that was that God had placed Adam and Eve upon planet Earth in the Garden of Eden in order to steward or to manage his creation. And so they were to be fruitful and multiply, yes, uh, but God gave them the authority to have dominion over God's creation. And as they stewarded that well, uh, God would continue to increase uh, not only their, the size of their family, but also the size of their territory. And so God's goal was for that dominion to spread throughout uh, the entire world. Well, as you know, Adam and Eve decided um, not to follow the Lord, but in one a moment in their life, they chose to rebel against God and what the Bible calls sin. They, they uh, succumbed to the temptation of, of Satan in the garden. And at that moment in time, it's very important to understand that they, they, they took the authority God had given them and the dominion, and they placed that into the hands of Satan. And so they gave up what God had given them. And uh, that's why the Bible calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world. There are various terms that are used all throughout the New Testament. And so Jesus, um, God had a plan uh, long before he ever created humanity. And that plan was that Christ would come, God in the flesh, and would live the life that you and I could not live and die the death that we could not die. And uh, so as Jesus was preparing for his death, uh, he gathered up what is known as disciples, right? So he called out 12, and he began pouring himself into their lives. And as he was uh, progressing with them, and, and they were observing him, uh, not only what he did, but listen to what he taught, uh, he said, guys, there's coming a point in time in which um, I'm going to give over to you the keys to the kingdom of God. I'm going to build my church through you, I'm going, to, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Now, in the building of the church, this was not a defensive mode. This was to be an offensive mode. In other words, God was about to start a brand new movement of God, and it would be called the kingdom of God, brought to bear on earth, and his disciples would be kind of the foundational individuals. Uh, certainly, the disciples weren't limited to the 12. There were multiple disciples beyond them, but they would be the foundation that would begin moving forward this brand new movement. And so he says, I give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth we bound, whatever you loose we loosen. And so like Jesus, when he started into the public ministry, he says, listen, I was, I was anointed by God uh, to, to bring good news, right, to the power of the gospel, to bear upon spiritual healing, physical healing, emotional healing, and demonic healing. And so uh, when, when that was conferred upon the disciples, Jesus said to them, hey, uh, we're going to give you a taste of what it's going to be like for you leading uh, my kingdom forward after, my, after I leave in my absence. And so he sent them out on like, I call them fishing expeditions. And he said, here's what I want you to take. This is what I don't want you to take. Here's what I'm giving you the authority to do. And they did. They went out and, and, and they, got, they saw God's, you know, miracles and healings. And, and sometimes there were, you know, demonic issues that they, they dealt with. Sometimes they had a struggle in dealing with that. And uh, so God gave them a taste of what was going to be a part of their lives after Jesus, after Jesus returned back to heaven. And so Jesus said to them at one point in John chapter 14, listen, the Holy Spirit has been upon you, but when I leave, he's going to be in you. He's going to indwell you. And he's going to indwell you for the purpose of power. And there's going to be a baptism. There's going to be a filling that's going to take place within you that's going to empower you to move forward my kingdom agenda. You are my missionaries and called to the mission field. And, and God is going to work through you through signs and miracles and wonders. And he's going to empower you with the good news of the gospel of Christ so that you may bring to bear upon the earth the will of God from heaven. And he, in fact, he even taught them to pray that way, right? In the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so uh, as we are going to study in the book of Acts, certainly Jesus uh, died. He was buried. He was resurrected. And the Bible says in Acts 1 that over a 40-day period of time, Jesus had been uh, meeting with his disciples off and on and talking to them about the kingdom of God. He wanted to remind them 
that listen, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving, but it's to your advantage that I'm leaving because when I leave, the Spirit will come within you. He will indwell you, and therefore he will empower you to do what you cannot do on your own. And so uh, now in their minds, they thought that the kingdom of God, as they had been taught, was like Messiah physical kingdom. Because in the Old Testament, that's the way the prophets saw it. They did not see the church age. When they looked across the mountains of prophecy, they saw Messiah coming, physical kingdom. So what's the first thing they asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6? Lord, uh, is this the time for the coming of your kingdom? Is this the time for your physical kingdom to be brought to bear on earth? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not you to know the times. Only the Father knows the times. But you will, be in, you will be endowed with power as the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the commission that Jesus gave to them and the various uh, things that he challenged them with about going and making disciples and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have shown you, all that I've commanded you. And so Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now I'm, I'm, I'm imparting that upon you because you are the agents of my kingdom. I will empower you with my spirit, and I'm giving back to you the authority and the dominion of my kingdom to bring to bear here on earth. And that is the mission. That is the movement of God that we started as we open up in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now listen, you and I are still a part of that movement. That movement has not ceased. That movement has not come to an end. That movement will not come to an end until Jesus comes back and raptures the church out of this world. And then God will move into a new era, a different like dispensation, a period of time in which that will begin, begin the, the tribulation. So we as a church, uh, one of our, uh, our, our, our mission statement is kind of built around, look, we come here on Sundays and we gather together so that we might grow together for the purpose of going, right? We are sent. We are God's missionaries. We are on mission with God. And God has empowered us with the Holy Spirit to enable us to accomplish that that mission. For what Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples when he gave them that great commission, he made sure that they understood that the Holy Spirit would be with them. And all great missionary movements have been spawned by men and women who have become desperate to see God's kingdom move in mighty and powerful ways and who have, who have prayed that way. I mean, so last week we saw in chapter 1 that there was just this, this attitude of desperation that, that this movement of God would happen. And it drove them to an act of desperation, so they began praying that God would move in such a way. And that's my desire through this, the course of this entire series, is that we would, we would have the attitude of desperation, that we would be so desperate in our hearts, because whenever God moves in powerful ways, it's because somebody has become desperate in their heart, and they're praying that God would move, that God would act. It's the way great revivals start. It's the, the way that great awakenings have started all throughout the course of history. And so we want to pray that God does that here. Because listen, God wants to bring spiritual healing. Do people still need spiritually healed in our day and time? Absolutely, they are lost. They are outside the kingdom of God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And the only way that we can bring the gospel message to them is in power, right? So we bring them, the, because Paul says the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't save people. You don't save people. I can't convict them of their sin. You can't convict them of their sins. That is an act of the Spirit of God. Do people still need physical healing? Absolutely do they do. Do they need uh, emotional healing? You bet they do. Do they need demonic healing? You, you bet they do. And yet for many, many years, um, the church has become kind of silent in this area. And um, we've just kind of, we've been kind of fearful, as I talked last week, we got like pneumophobia, we're kind of a little fearful of the Spirit and, and unleashing Him and allowing Him to do what He desires to do and, and the way that He desires to do it. So I want us to become very comfortable with the Spirit of God because, as you're going to notice, all throughout the book of Acts, and in verse 4 of chapter 2, you want to underline, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to see this term, the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
all throughout the book of Acts. It's a very important term because it speaks of power. It speaks of authority. It speaks to bringing to bear upon earth the very will and desire of God. Because when you are walking in the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit always will bring you in alignment with the will of God. And if it's God's will that none perish, but all come to repentance, if it's God's will that people experience not just forgiveness of their sin, but also freedom in Christ, then God has to empower a group of people through whom he's going to work to see that happen and accomplished. And so we're it, all right? We are the church. We're we're Acts 29. Uh, We are the continuation of what God began uh, over 2,000 years ago. And so um, here's what I want you to put above verse 1 of chapter 2. It's the word wait. The filling of the Spirit um, results in a determination to wait for a a movement of the Spirit. Um, So it says, when the day Pentecost came, they were all together. In other words, they were united in heart and mind and purpose. And that's, that's our prayer for this This church is that we be united in heart, mind, and purpose surrounding the mission God's given us in one place. And then suddenly, like a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation. Under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? Now, why do they point that out? Because Galileans were like the country bumpkins of their day, they were the lowly educated. How in the world are these uneducated Galileans speaking perfect dialect? In our language, that would be like having um, Duck Dynasty speaking perfect dialect of Mandarin to the Chinese. Just unheard of, right? So it's just, it says they're bewildered. They, don't, they just can't understand. They can't grasp it. They're amazed by it. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Pergia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, uh, the Cretans and the Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? I love questions, right? And I've put under your outline the questions that are being asked and the questions that are being answered. What, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So waiting. So it's no accident that on the day of Pentecost, that God would select this Jewish festival in order to bring about the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is the word 50th, and it's 50 days after Passover. Passover, uh, you'll recall, described what happened back in the book of Exodus when God delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. So Passover, there was a Passover lamb. Jesus was the fulfillment of that, right? Uh, that, That Jewish festival holiday pointed to Christ. He was the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And followed up with that is the Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits really speaks of the resurrection of Christ. He was the first fruit of resurrection. And so as we're going to see in the um, book of Acts, especially here in chapter 2, there's the first fruits of his resurrection. There's going to be 3,000 people on this given day that's going to cross the line and give their, their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Pentecost is the day that God forms his church through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And in this uh, celebration, there were two loaves of bread that were used that were leavened bread, one representing the Jewish believers who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then the Gentiles believers who would later receive that same baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why the bread was leavened is because uh, their leaven in the Bible often refers to sin. And so the church is not going to be perfect, all right? Uh, there are going to be people who make up the church who are sinful individuals. How many of you have ever been to a perfect church? 
Yeah, that's what I thought. None of you, because there are no perfect churches. The church, the bride of Christ, will not be in her perfected state of being until we enter into heaven, right? So in the meantime, we've got to put up with each other. But for the purpose of the movement of God, right? So we come together in oneness of heart, mind, and soul in unity because we are here. We understand our assignment is not just to be good people. Our assignment is not just to come to a worship service. Our assignment is not just just to pray and just to read God's word or just to give. Our assignment is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the known world in our Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world because it is the power of God unto salvation that provides for the forgiveness of sin and freedom in Christ. What I mean by freedom is that we will experience every spiritual blessing that is available to us in Christ Jesus. We bring to bear upon earth a little bit of heaven, and so that is God's commission to us. And so we, we too, we too must wait. You see, waiting is a time of preparation. These disciples have been in this upper room for 10 days praying anticipating, uh, probably going through their life and wondering, you know what? Uh, are we worthy of this calling? Are we worthy of what's about to happen to us? Even when God called Joshua to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, he set them on the, this side of the Jordan and said, now God says, I want you to sit there and I want you to wait for three days. And I want you to consecrate yourself. And God gave them instructions as to what to do. Why is that important to us? Because every single day of our lives, we need to wait on the Spirit, right? Rather than just jumping up and jumping into the day and jumping into things, is that we want to wait. We want to hear. We want to prepare our hearts. We want to listen. That's why Jesus, every single day, he began his day with prayer. He ended his day with prayer. Sometimes he had prayer meetings midweek, sometimes a midday. Sometimes they would be all night long because it was a time of waiting and listening to the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to give direction to his life and direction to his ministry. You know, this year, um, as I thought about our church and how we want to engage in our community this year and what, 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 what we might do, and there are certain things that we do every year, like, you know, um, vacation Bible school and some other little more evangelistic things. And then I was sitting there praying, God said, wait, you, you just wait, I'll, I'll open up the doors. And so uh, this was about mid-December, and uh, a young man called me up. And uh, he says, uh, I'm, I'm the head of Lighthouse Ministries, and uh, we, we are an outreach to um, the military. And so he says, listen, I know that Rickenbacker Air Force Base, uh, what's left of it, the reserve units are out there, the a refueling unit. He said, um, we would like to do a feeding to the Army Reserve Unit. And uh, God just laid on my heart to call you because we think that your church is in a strategic place and location. So uh, he's friends with a chaplain out there. And long story short, uh, I brought this to our senior adults on their Christmas party and said, hey, would you guys be interested in heading this up? Uh, we want the whole church involved, uh, but we would like for you to head it up. And so initially, um, when I received word back from the chaplain, they said, well, this is probably going to be in April, March or April, uh, when the units are there, about 30 people. Uh, okay, so that's already grown to 150 uh, we don't know how much, there's going to be two reserve units there. We have opportunity to go in and pray with them, uh, do a Bible study with them, feed them, love on them. Who knows what God may do through this ministry? Who knows what doors of opportunity God may open for us as a church as we minister to these military personnel and their families? Uh, some churches have done this in other areas, in Dayton and other areas, and it's opened up huge opportunities in which now they're going on the base every single month in order to do ministry to those who are here on the, on the reserve unit. So I, I don't think it's by accident that our church has a lot of ex-military people uh, in our, our congregation, and we certainly already have a built-in heart and passion, passion for the military. And so it's just like when you're waiting on God, when you're just kind of waiting on the Spirit, the Spirit kind of prepares you for what it is that he wants you to do. And so sometimes we spend our entire Christian lives just wanting to run and do and, and do and do and do and do without actually just sitting and waiting and saying, you know what, Holy Spirit, what is it you want 
me to do? How, how do you want me to approach this? How, how, do we, how, do we, how do we just prepare ourselves for a movement of you? Now, here's the second word I want you to put, and that is the word worship. In verses 2 through 13, when there's the filling of the Spirit, it always results in daily worshiping of the Lord. If you look at Acts, or Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 18 through 20, you'll note Paul commanded us to be filled with the Spirit, and he followed that up with that we'll, there will be singing and praise and, and worship that's going to accompany the filling of the Spirit. Because you'll notice it says that uh, down in verse um, uh, verse 11, it says, these who are, who are in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem would have you know, swelled in size because of this Jewish festival, we hear them declaring what? The wonders of God. They're worshiping. They're declaring the wonders of God as the Spirit has come upon them as promised. Because remember, throughout the entire Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people in order to accomplish a purpose in a very powerful way. You know, like, like Samson and David and Gideon and just so many different people that the Spirit came upon. And so now the, the, the promise is that the Spirit's going to come and indwell. And you'll notice that it comes through an audible, the, the sound of a rushing wind. It comes through something that is visible, the tongues of fire. And certainly it comes through uh, an oral thing that is a language. So let's just kind of back up here a moment because sights and sounds associated with God's presence uh, was often seen throughout the Old Testament. And so you notice it goes back, well, just back up, it says that it, there was this blowing, there was this violent wind from heaven that filled the whole house where they were sitting. And so that word wind is the word pneuma, uh, in which we get the word wind or spirit. Uh, John 3, 8, Jesus compared the Holy Spirit to the wind as he's talking to Nicodemus about being, you know, born again into God's kingdom. In the Hebrew, the word is ruha. So think about this. God, in the very beginning, when he created humanity, he breathed into us the ruha, the very spirit, the very presence of God. When sin entered into the realm of humanity, the ruha, the presence of God, vacated humanity. We were spiritually dead. And so for God to use people in a very powerful and mighty way, representing his presence in a given situation, the spirit of God would come upon them. But God knew for this group of people to fulfill what it is he's calling them to do, that he he needed to permanently indwell them with his power and his presence because that's the only way that it could accomplish the task that God had set before them. It is the same word that is used in Ezekiel to describe the Spirit of God moving over a valley of dry bones. And as God begins to put those bones back together, God breathes the ruha, the Spirit, upon those dead dry bones so that they come alive. And suddenly there is a thunder and there is a clattering of the bones as they come together. And so this, the sound of this rushing wind, it got the disciples' attention immediately, obviously, but it also gathered the attention of those who were near them and probably in the temple area. And so uh, the word house here, uh, there's some discrepancy here because Stephen uses the word house to refer to the temple. Were they in a section of the temple like the court of the Gentiles or were they in an upper room that was near the temple? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Definitely, but uh, I would say that's probably they're back in the upper room near the temple. But certainly there was such a, a resounding uh, sound of the wind that it captured the attention of those who were near them and the tongues of fire. I love tongues of fire. Notice it says that the tongues of fire that separate, it came to rest on each of them. See, fire purifies, fire, fire convicts. Fire makes us into what God wants us to be. All through the Old Testament, we see the presence of God descending in fire, right? He appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He led Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. By night, he consumed Mount Sinai in fire when he gave law to the Moses. The heavenly temple was filled with fire and smoke as Isaiah saw it filling with God's glory. Solomon saw the fire of God settle into the Holy of Holies when he commissioned the temple. And so here in Acts chapter 2, the fire of God himself is sitting. He's resting upon these believers. Every believer has become like a burning bush in which the fire, the presence, the power of God is residing. And do you understand how much power you have? Maybe not, but I hope you come to understand that because the Spirit of God is indwelling you, 
that the fire of God has come upon you. And Jesus, as he commands us to go, we go with tremendous power. And then they begin displaying that power by speaking in a language. A language is that uh, there are people from all around the known world. As you look at these different countries, you're talking about from Iran and Iraq and places in Turkey and, and just all over the Mediterranean area. And, and they're all together and they're hearing they're hearing their own languages being spoken by those who only knew the very basic of Aramaic and, and they're speaking in perfect dialect. How can they do that? It is the power of God. They didn't take a, you know, a Dale Carnegie course or enroll in a class on positive thinking. The only difference is that they had the power of the Spirit of God on them. And notice the reactions. Then verse 6, there was people who were confused about what was going on. Some people were amazed. In fact, that, that word amazement is in the imperfect tense, which means they, they were constantly, they were just continually being amazed. Like, how are these guys doing this? How, how is this taking place? 15 different geographical locations, dozens of languages, but some of them even became, you know, they got into denial. And so this brings two very clear doctrinal issues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I do not have time to get into the depth of those doctrines, but I do, I'm going to leave a lot of meat on the bone, but let me talk about them for a moment. Because we're going to see this over and over again in the book of Acts, and we're going to spend a whole message just on both of those topics, on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, actually three, speaking in tongues and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what are those? What's going on? What is happening? <clears throat> so uh, obviously we note that in the book of Acts, as the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was promised by God comes upon these disciples that the baptism of the Samaritans was delayed, the baptisms of the Gentiles was delayed because there was a great rift of prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles. In fact, so much so, the Jews would, had nicknames for the, for the uh, Gentiles. They called them dogs. That's one of the reasons why um, a woman came to Jesus to have her, her daughter uh, needed <clears throat> deliverance from a demonic spirit. Can't do it. I came to the house of Israel. And she goes through a scenario and says, but even the dogs eat from the scraps of the table. And so referring to her own derogatory name that the Jews would use against them. And Jesus says, I've never, I haven't seen such great faith. Go, your daughter's, your daughter's been delivered. So let's just, uh, just drill down for it because there's a lot of different teachings about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does baptism of the Holy Spirit come you know, at the moment of salvation? It is a delayed thing. Do you have to search after it, seek after it, ask for it? And does it accompany tongues? Does it always accompany by tongues? Or is it only um, part of the time, some of the time? So let me just kind of um, flesh that out for just a moment. Do not try to take the baptism of the Holy Spirit as given in the book of Acts and try to superimpose that upon the norm. Because this was a very... Um, Different, distinct moment because it is the birth of the church and the church is beginning to expand. So obviously in the book of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples here and it is delayed being given to the Samaritans and then it is delayed being given to the Gentiles. So we have to go to the doctrinal passages concerning this, which would be out of 1 Corinthians. So basically, here's, here's the, the, the picture of Scripture is that the moment you give your life to Christ, that is the moment you step across the line of faith, you embrace Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life. There are several things in conjunction with the Holy Spirit that happens to you immediately. And so one of my favorite foods is ribs. <laughs> so let's just think of it in terms of that. There is what the Bible calls regeneration, which simply means that you're born into God's kingdom. You become a child of God. Through the Holy Spirit. He's the one who brings conviction. He's the one who's drawn you into this relationship. He is the one who takes what Jesus has done on the cross and brings it to bear into your life as a child of God. And then comes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is just automatic. It comes. And say, and there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit where you are baptized into the body of Christ. And so you are... You, 
To be baptized in the body of Christ, the word baptizo means to dip or to immerse or to dye something. For example, my clothing is dyed in black. And so Paul's favorite term to describe this was you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That is, you've literally been baptized into Christ. You are dyed, you are stained, so that the righteousness of Jesus, as it was accredited to your account, when God looks upon you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees only Christ, because that is the work of the baptism of the Spirit of God. And so he's indwelling you, he's, he certainly has filled you, and then the S is that the Bible says in Ephesians 1, he has sealed you under the day of redemption, which means there is no way that you can unseal the Spirit of God in you unless you are stronger than the Spirit. Now, there's also the giftings of the Spirit, there's multiple fillings of the Spirit. We're going to see that the disciples are filled at multiple different occasions all throughout the book of Acts. So that's just kind of an overview. Well, so what about the issue of tongues? Well, obviously, as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as promised, they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking in a glossa, a known language. And so that is a public evidence of the Spirit. Now, obviously, the Bible also talks about uh, the, the, baptism, or the, the speaking in tongues in terms of an, an, an ecstatic utterance, a, a prayer language. And uh, so... Paul deals with all this in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 concerning the use of tongues in a public uh, worship service and, and the private use. And some people try to say, well, if you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, it must be evidenced by speaking in tongues. But the Bible does not bear that out. Paul said, I wish that you all had the gift of tongues, but you don't. But Paul also said, I wish you all were celibate, but you're not. So you choose. <laughs> you want tongues or celibacy? Uh, no, just kidding. But the gift of tongues has not ceased. It is, it is a prayer language that Paul describes an utterance in Romans chapter 8. Um, I've been in worship services where, where speaking in tongues breaks out. And Paul said, you know, there needs to be interpreter. Interpret it. If not, have them sit down. Uh, some people do that. Some people don't. But in this prayer language, there are those who have that gift. I don't have that gift. I wish I had that gift. I don't. But I have been around people who have that gift. And God uses it in such powerful ways because God brings to bear upon that situation things that that person could not see or perceive. For example, in our healing prayer team, I just want you to know. No, we have a member in our team who speaks in tongues and everybody has a different giftedness that has been brought to the table. And so we are in the power of agreement. And as we are praying, as this person may or may not speak in tongues, when she does, it is amazing because all of a sudden God brings to the surface, the giftedness of the group of individuals to one, uh, he enables this person to see visions and, and being able to see pictures of what's going on to my wife. He brings scripture. God all of a sudden just brings scriptures to her mind. And this all happens in the, you know, in the boundaries of scripture, but you know, everybody brings something to the table. And then all of a sudden there's such clarity that has been brought to the table for this individual that enables us to begin praying in certain ways and see God move in different directions. Um, I, 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 it's just, a, it's just a movement of the spirit. So when it comes to, to the baptism and the filling of the Spirit, um, the way the Scripture kind of lays it out is that baptism happens once at salvation. The filling of the Spirit is a multiple thing. It happens throughout. It, it, it's an issue of power. And then there's the anointing of the Spirit that comes upon people for, for greater um, power and authority. There, it's baptism is a past event. Filling is a present reality. Baptism is for every believer. Uh, the filling of the Spirit is really uh, the degree you're walking in obedience. You're walking in surrender to the Holy Spirit. So you can live your life indwelt by the Spirit of God, but not live in the fullness of the Spirit because you're, you're, there's just, you're just no surrender in your life. And, and so therefore you are hindering uh, the, the Spirit who wants to empower you and to fill you for the calling that he has placed on your life. Baptism is a positional truth. Filling is an experiential practice. Baptism places you in the body of Christ. You know, filling is, uh, enables the believer to live for Christ. This, baptism is about the Spirit's residence in your life. Filling is about the Spirit being president of your life, that he is, he is moving. And so um, you cannot, there, there has never been, for example, a great evangelical movement of God apart from the baptism, the filling, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
And so great people in the past talk about this all the time. I don't know why we turn a deaf ear. For example, Charles Finney, the great 19th century evangelist and president of Ober Oberlin College, explained how his, he experienced the fullness of the Spirit and the anointing of Spirit. And here's what he says. I received a mighty, he called it a baptism. I think why we get confused about baptism and filling is I think that a lot of times people speak in the baptism are really referencing the filling and I don't know. There's just sometimes great confusion. He called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Without any rec recollection, I ever heard of the thing mentioned by a person in the world. He said, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through my body and soul. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of just liquid love. People like D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, all talk about this, this divine filling, this divine anointing of the Spirit, and you'll find that all throughout church history. Those who say to me, well, you know, the filling of the Holy, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or filling of the Holy Spirit, or tongues, that, or, or the, the miracles and wonders and signs, that all cease back with the apostolic age because now we have the, 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 the Bible in its entirety. I don't, I don't buy that. You, you're going to have to deny a lot of church history because we're going to go through church history. And, and I'll show you time and time again where these, the signs, the miracles, the wonders accompany the filling and the fullness of the Spirit and the anointing of God. Listen, the same Holy Spirit that baptized and filled and anointed these individuals at Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that has baptized, filled, and anoints us as followers of Jesus Christ. And you do have the authority, the kingdoms of the the keys of the kingdom, in order to bring to bear on earth that which is desired in heaven. And so God wants to use you in that way. So I'm gonna, I just want you to know this about the filling. This is not you're getting more of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't give you the Holy Spirit like giving you a deck of cards, like he gives you a little bit at a time. Somebody says, well, you didn't like, you know, filling up like this bottle's half full. In the fullness of God just keeps pouring more and more of the Holy Spirit in you. No, that's a bad illustration. A better illustration would be a balloon. You blow air into that balloon, it expands, but it has the potential to expand even more. As you surrender, you remember a few months ago, I gave you the covenant of surrender. When you look through that covenant of surrender, you might think, you know, I think I'm totally surrendered to the Holy Spirit. But when you read through that covenant, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not even close. As you surrender, as the Spirit has more of you, he fills and empowers and enables you to do things you can't do on your own. If we are going to see God in a movement in our church, if we're going to see God in a movement among our family and beyond, it is because the Spirit of God is coming upon us. Now, notice the next one is, and I've got two minutes here, three minutes. Now the next word is the word witness. There is a cycle here, all right? When you're waiting on the Spirit, waiting... Evolves, evolves into worshiping. And as you worship, you have this desire to witness, right? You have this desire to tell others about what God has done in your life. And so Peter launches into this long sermon. That's not too long. It's only 22 verses. Somebody asked me, say, hey, how can Peter preach a sermon in 22 verses, 3,000 people get saved, and you preach for 45 minutes, ain't nothing happening. Well, I got an answer for you. Down in verse 40, it says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded, okay? He wasn't done after 22 verses. So it answers the question, what, what shall we do? This is the question that is asked to those who are listeners. So Peter goes into this, this message. He stood up, um, up with the 11, raised his voice, addressed the crowd. And he addresses them and he begins to very methodically unfold for them and here's the title of his first sermon, Why I Believe in the Gospel and You Should Too. And so he begins unfolding. I'm not going to go through every verse because that's impossible uh, in the time I've got, but I'll, I'll just kind of give you his outline, right? It's a five-point outline. He begins by saying to them, listen, prophecy has been fulfilled in front of you. That's why I believe in the gospel and you ought to believe in it also. Because there were those who were accusing these men of being drunk and he says, look, it's nine in the morning. That's not what's happening. What is happening is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Joel. God is pouring, in these last days, verse 17, God is pouring out his spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, 
catch that, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. That's the fulfillment that happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, verses 19 through 20 is, is what transpires during the great tribulation. You'll find those verses almost word for word in the book of Revelation. So in between verses 18 and 19, you want to put the church age because that's the fulfillment, the spirits poured out upon men and women church, during the church age. And then um, in verse 19, we pick up the future. I will show wonders in the heavens above, the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. We see that in the book of Revelation. And then in verse 21, he comes back to the present. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, why? Because there is power in the gospel. The power of God unto salvation. And then if you want to jot in there, after he talks about the prophecies that are fulfilled, in verses 22, verse 22 talks about the miracles that were performed. He said, men of Israel, uh, this Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Think about this. Most of these people probably listening to Peter had seen some miracles or signs or wonders that Jesus had done. I mean, what if they're sitting in the crowd and they're thinking, you know what? Uh, well, why didn't they jump up and say, well, you know what? I, I was at the feeding of the 5,000, but I'm not so sure that that was really a miracle. I think that the disciples had put some coolers around the backside of the hill and ran around there and got stuff and was handing it out. In fact, one of the greatest miracles was the fact of Jesus' resurrection. You will notice not one single person out of the thousands who are listening to Peter could stand up and say, I'd, listen, I, I have a bone to, uh, to pick in that I don't think that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I don't believe that. I don't think you can authenticate that. Not one single person would challenge Peter in the proclamation that he's making because they knew better. I mean, think about this. It was only like 50 days prior to this that Jesus is walking around. He's, he's appearing to people all over the place. And then... He says the grave is empty. That's his, his next point in his sermon in verses uh, 23 through uh, 34. He said, this man was handed to you by God's foreknowledge. And you, 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 with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead because it is impossible for death to keep hold of him. And here's one of the beautiful, beautiful Psalms uh, that David uh, quoted uh, from David, it says, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. What, what, is the, what was their hope built on? The resurrection of Christ. This is worth uh, the price you paid to get in here. Listen, those who have the greatest hope have the greatest influence in life. I don't have any hope to bring you. I have very little influence over you. But if I have hope to bring you, I've got a tremendous amount of influence. And so he says that this is, this is a fulfillment. These, these are miracles that have been performed. The grave has been emptied. You crucified him. And God has raised him. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. So we, we come to people and we say, listen, this is why you need to believe in the gospel. And people say, well, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't need anybody to die for my sins. And, uh, you know, I think that life is all about this. Life is about being a good person, loving your family, and doing the best you can. That's the typical answer that I get from people. Life's all about being a good person. You know, do the best you can, love your family. That's, that's just the basis of life. And hope that in the end, your good outweighs the bad. I mean, think about that. I mean, you could just take him to the Ten Commandments because you say, well, you know, life is really more about that. <laughs> there is a sin issue that you have to deal with with God. And just kind of go through the Ten Commandments with him. You know, um, you're not to have any other gods before me. That means if you, at any time... Uh, Something has become more important to you than God. You've already broken that command. Do not commit adultery. Anyone who looks upon a woman with lust, Jesus said, 
He's already committed adultery in his heart. Every man has already checked off that list. Don't bear fault witness. If you've never said anything against anyone that is not true ever, then you've kept that one. But probably most of us have not. You can't steal. You can't take anything that's not yours in the material things, reputation, nothing that is not yours can be in your hands. You can't covet anything. You can't want or desire anything that anybody else has. We've all sinned. And then he drops into, listen, the disciples have been empowered, exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you have seen and what you have heard. And so this empowerment of the disciples, and then he says, his enemies have been defeated. Therefore, let all Israel be assured, this God who's made you, this Jesus whom you crucified, you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Because the Lord has done what? He has seated him at the right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is an incredible sermon that he gives them. And think about what are the enemies that are the footstool of Christ? Death is a footstool. You and I may die physically, but I do not die spiritually, right? So it's absent from the body to be present with the world, uh, with the Lord. So, you know, disease is, is under his footstool. The demonic is under his footstool because Jesus is a man or had became a man. He f- has felt what we feel, but because he was God, he did something about it. That's the story. That's the message. That's the hope that we have to bring people. Is that you do not have to live in your misery. You do not have to live a life that is filled with worry and fear and anxiety. You do not have to live a life that is just, you know, keeping you chained and bound to your past so that you cannot move forward in your future. You do not have to live that kind of life. Those things are enemies of Christ. They have become his footstool and he can bring forgiveness and freedom in whatever area that you are held in bondage and in captive to, whether it is by your own doing or by the doing of Satan himself. Amen. Well, at least one person got it. Right. So, Notice what it says. The people are pierced. They were cut to their heart. Who did the cutting? The Spirit of God did. He cut them to their heart. And they asked the most penetrating question. You know, what is it that we need to do? Brothers, what shall we do? Now, here comes another one of those controversial passages. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise for you and your children and all who are afar off for all whom the Lord our God will call. Here's that word for. Uh, every, repent, be baptized, everyone in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And so there are those who take that verse and say, well, the only way you can be forgiven of your sins is to be baptized. All right? You repent of your sin, and then you are baptized. And that is the completion of your salvation experience, called baptismal regeneration. The problem is, you're trying to base a theology on one word that is a preposition in the Greek. And uh, in the Greek, the word for is the word ice, which does not mean, uh, the word does not mean in order to, it means because of. Right, the other Greek word that is translated is henna, and it means in order to. That's not the word that Peter selected here. It is the word ice. For example, in Matthew 12, 41, it says the people of Nineveh repented because of the preaching of Jonah. Right? It's the same preposition in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. They didn't repent in order to, for Jonah to preach. The order was clear. Repentance is for forgiveness found in Christ. And so when I receive Christ, it's, it's a step of repentance, right? No one will be saved apart from repentance. There has to be a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Because in my mind, in my heart, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I could care less about Jesus. I, it didn't matter to me. I never even heard the word Jesus until I was a teenager that wasn't used in a, as a curse word. Because no one in my family, my immediate family, was a, uh, was a believer. And so the first time I'm confronted with the gospel, it's like, <laughs> I don't need that. Well, 
It doesn't matter to me. It makes no difference to me. But it's the Spirit of God that did what? The Spirit of God brought conviction over time, and that conviction led to a change of mind that led to a change of direction. That is what repentance is. There is no change in life before you, until you change your mind, change your thoughts, and you change the direction of your life. And so I changed my, my mind about myself, about God, about Christ, about the Spirit, and so I offered up my body as a living sacrifice to him so that I could receive Christ into my life. And at that moment in time, God baptized me into the body of Christ. He indwelt me. Uh, he sealed me. And so, yes, I followed up in believer's baptism, which is a source of identification with a local body of believers as a step of obedience and discipleship to the Lord. Because, uh, you know, that for me was a very important step. This is the calling God's got on our lives, to help people find Jesus and help them to grow in that relationship, help them to learn. So here's the last word is the word walk. In verses 42 through 47 is that you'll notice that the walk of these believers is like they rolled up their sleeves and they said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to band together and we're going we're gonna to walk filled with the Holy Spirit because being filled with the Holy Spirit was not a request to be considered. It was a command to be obeyed. And we're gonna walk in the fullness of the Spirit and we're gonna allow God to use us in this movement that he has begun. And that's just my challenge to us in this chapter is that notice the cycle is that when I'm waiting and I'm seeking out the Spirit and that results in worship and worship results in witnessing and witnessing drives me deeper in my walk with Christ and that walk with Christ causes me to want to wait on the Spirit and to worship in deeper ways and to witness in better ways and deeper ways and more profound ways in that I'm witnessing among more people than I naturally would. Let's say you take something out of that cycle. Let's say you take witnessing out. You stop and you say, you know what? I love worshiping the Lord on Sundays, but man, that witnessing thing, uh uh-uh, not me. I don't have the giftedness. I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. I don't have the personality. And you come up with thousands of excuses and you just leave that off the radar of your life. And you say, well, I'm just going to witness through my life, which is not, it's got to go beyond this because it's a historical event that we're sharing with people and any historical event must be learned. And so we have to show people what it is to to, to have a relationship with God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ, if I cut that out of my life, I guarantee you that it's going to hinder your walk and that walk's going to hinder the waiting and it's going to hinder the worshiping and everything's going to begin cycling downward as we cycle upward and as we are moving more and more in the fullness of the Spirit, we stay caught up in this waiting and worshiping and witnessing and walking. And so it is amazing that as they did that, it's not that they always did it perfect. We don't always do it perfect. But as they they did that and they allowed God to unfold that in their lives. The Bible says that God just kept adding to their numbers. God will always make provision for our obedience to his calling. If we walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Let's bow our heads together for a moment.